Each week we read the Bible out loud as an act of worship to God, the heavenly author of the Bible. I'll be reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And after I'm reading God's word, I will proclaim, this is the word of the Lord, and I ask, um, I invite you to respond prayerfully, speak, Lord, your servants here. Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may take your seats. Good morning, Taproot. Um, if you're new here, welcome. My name is Will. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Normally, I am uh, behind, hiding behind a guitar and singing things today. Um, I get the honor and the privilege to bring the word this morning. Um, if you are new, we do have these little connect cards in the back of every seat pocket. Uh, this is just a means for us to get to know you. Uh, there's an opportunity for you to write down things we can be praying for for you. I, I promise here. I promise there is no mailing list. I promise there is no email thing. You won't, you won't get sent anything. This is just for us to minister to you through prayer. So fill that out. Put it in the uh, little black boxes or bring it to that welcome bus out in the foyer. Um, here at Taproot, we are all about discipleship. We are about inviting people to become disciples of Jesus Christ. We are about equipping disciples of Jesus Christ for life, for flourishing. We are about sending disciples of Jesus Christ out into the world for ministry and to bring the world's flourishing. And one of the ways we do that is through sermons. Um, this sermon series, we're looking at the book of Colossians. Um, I'd like to just quick give us a, a brief, a very brief recap of what Colossians has said thus far. I'd love to pray, and then we'll dive into the word. Um, so in the book of Colossians, uh, this is a New Testament book. It's written after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's written by uh, a guy, the apostle Paul, who's writing to a church that he uh, we see very early on. He loves very deeply, but he's never actually seen them face to face. In chapter one, he reminds the church who they are, that they are the church of God in Colossae, um, that they are where they are on purpose. Um, they're, they're where they are for a reason, and he prays for them. Um, he expresses thankfulness for their belief in Jesus. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He prays that they would bear the fruits of faithfulness to Jesus. And then he reminds them of the reality of the gospel, um, that they have been delivered from darkness and into light. He reminds them that they possess the forgiveness of their sins. And then he paints for them a picture of Jesus. Jesus is, in, in, in this chapter, he's centering in on Jesus as the highest authority, the greatest, most powerful being in the universe. He, he's focusing on Jesus as above all and before all and over all, and eventually says, in Jesus, every molecule, molecule of the universe and even the stuff that you and I can't see and can't know about is held together by his power. 
He says that through that Jesus, that powerful Jesus' death on the cross, you and I, the church in Colossae, um, we've, we've all been brought near to God in Christ. And then in chapter 2, Paul tells the church that when they suffer as Christians, what that suffering does is it serves to point a spotlight on the sufferings of Jesus. Last week, uh, Luis preached a sermon and, and showed us how uh, Paul has this, this labor and this, this suffering and this, this agony, this wrestling in prayer and in faith that the church of God in Colossae, uh, that the church of God in South Seattle might be knit together in love. This week, we're going to focus pretty heavily on uh, verse 8, this idea of not being held captive to philosophy. Um, so I'd love to pray for us. We'll start with our big idea. Let's pray. Jesus, before I deal with a word of the Bible, I want to stop and declare that a moment ago when we read the Bible out loud, we've, we've actually already heard the most powerful words we will hear today. Um, I don't want to seek to add anything to your word. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't want to do any gymnastics. I don't want to make it cooler or anything like that. I simply want to give us an opportunity to explore it, to meditate on it, and to focus on it. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply a perfect text through an imperfect sermon. As the sermon goes out, may the text that we've read now start to read us. Thank you that you are faithful to do that as we meet every week. Help us worship you as we sit under the goodness of your word now. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to give you a quick silly story. Um, that I think will give us a helpful category. There is this dog in the house, and there, there's a fish in a fishbowl. Uh, they, they live together. They, they start to become good friends. The, the fish lives, and it's a, we're going to say it's a goldfish in that like classic circular fishbowl with like the deep-sea diver that's you know, in the bottom. We've all seen that, right? So the dog and the fish start to get to know each other. They become good friends, and they start talking. And the, the fish is, is asking what it's like to be a dog all day. What, what does that entail? And eventually the dog asks, I'm really curious, what's it like to like live in water all day? Like, what's that like? And the fish responds, what's water? Keep, keep that idea of what is water in our heads. So I, I think Paul is, is uh, going to take us there. Uh, Paul's warning in in verse 8, don't be held captive to dangerous or false philosophies. When we hear that, I know for myself, I tend to think of like the obvious ones. Uh, this, Paul is probably writing to the church in Colossae about uh, a system of thought or a philosophy that would later become Gnosticism. Um, I don't see a lot of uh, Gnostics in Gnostic robes walking around the streets of Buring and inviting us to their Gnostic churches. I think we're pretty safe um, in, in identifying that false philosophy, right? You guys would probably be able to rightly discern that. I think if I came up here and said, Taproot, I have a new philosophy for us. This is my philosophy. God is love. Love is blind. Ray Charles is blind. God is Ray Charles. I think all of you would rightly say false philosophy, right? Right? 
That's easy. I don't actually think that stuff is very dangerous. It's obvious. I think what's more dangerous is a philosophy that's so interwoven and embedded in the fabric of our culture that it becomes like water in a fish. You swim in it all day. It's all you've ever known. And it just becomes normal. It doesn't become a philosophy. It just becomes what we do. Um, one of those philosophies, I believe, um, is, is the philosophy, we're going to call it um, autonomous individualism. Um, autonomous individualism, we're, we're going to unpack this throughout the sermon, but it's this idea that the highest state of my being is when I am a means unto myself and I have the freedom to do or choose or say or define everything and anything that has to do with my life. I am not subject to any rule or outside authority. I decide my own destiny. I think that's what we're going to call autonomous individualism this morning. And our big idea is we must reject captivity to the deceptive philosophy of autonomous individualism, where the highest value of society is my own personal autonomy and freedom. We must reject the idea that I am an authority unto myself. So um, a helpful category for us to, to see some of this um, how many of you guys listen to this cultural moment, Mark Sayers? I'm about to parrot him for a couple of minutes. It's awesome. If you don't currently listen to that podcast, start yesterday. All right, so uh, Mark Sayers gives this really helpful uh, visual for, for talking about how culture works. He, he calls it the three reservoirs of society. Those three reservoirs are the reservoir of identity, community, and freedom. Um, identity is, is the sense of uh, how do we answer the question, do I matter or why do I matter? It's a sense of purpose. Uh, there's a guy, Victor E. Frankel, who wrote a book about uh, the search for meaning and how we answer that question. And he, he talks a little bit about um, his research in the Jews in the Nazi concentration camps. And what he found was it wasn't the, the, the physically strongest that survived in, in the concentration camps. And it wasn't the smartest that survived. By and large, the, the people who survived the concentration camps were those with the deepest sense of meaning. Um, a quote from his book is, Those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. And so we see that since a sense of identity is absolutely central to, to the idea of being human. Another, uh, another reservoir of, of, of uh, society is community. This is the sense of belonging to something, sense of being a part of something. Um, how many of you guys were present for when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl? How many of you guys were here? In this? Okay, so um, I am not a football fan. I'm sorry, I'll repent later. Um, but it was interesting in that run to, to gradually see the number of 12 jerseys, to gradually see the, the amount of green and blue in our cities increase and increase and increase and increase. And I was uh, watching the Super Bowl here in Burien the night that they won. Um, if you guys have been in Seattle for more than 45 seconds, you've probably encountered the Seattle freeze, as we call it. Um, this thing where we kind of like pass each other and... Kind of, like that's, that's Seattle for, hello, good morning, how are you? 
Um, Here's the thing. When the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, because we were all gathered around this team and supporting this team, their victory was my victory. I don't even like football. And I was so excited for this thing that I didn't care about for years. When I walked outside in Burien, when we, we, even there's, there's pictures of the streets of Seattle. Guys, the idea of community defeated the Seattle freeze for a couple of days. Think about that. Community around a football team undid the social fabric of Seattle for a little bit. So we see that culture is this, this powerful engine for social change. And lastly, the reservoir of freedom. This cultural respect given to, to, to make choices, um, it's, 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 it's freedoms and liberties. Places like uh, North Korea or places under like a totalitarian dictatorship don't experience this. Um, and we rightly see that as dehumanizing. We, we rightly see that as injustice. Um, that's good. We have to have freedoms. The thing I want to submit is our culture has become obsessed with a good thing and turned it into a bad thing. See, we live in a country that I'm very thankful for, but our country was founded on this idea of freedom, and that was a good thing. Um, And then social movements and changes happened. Uh, Eventually, we're going to fast forward to the 90s in Seattle. The 90s in Seattle was a grunge-filled, plaid shirt, ripped jeans-wearing time where we, we really embraced this idea of radical individualism. You are not a part of something. You are an end unto yourself. Stick it to the man. Anarchy, like hot topic made like $4 million in 12 months. Like it, it was a crazy time. And there's a, lot of social, uh, there's a lot of social ideas thrown out all around the idea of you can be an end to yourself. You don't need people. No one has the right to tell you anything. Here's the thing. Uh, the, the, the grungy plaid, went away, right? The ideas did not. They, they've stayed in our heads. Um, fast forward to now, we are obsessed with autonomy and it is breaking us. Um, we're so obsessed with this idea of autonomy that we have actually starved the other reservoirs. So um, when, when I am obsessed with freedom, I can't be a part of community because community requires a sacrifice of freedom. Uh, for you to really be a part of your family, you don't re-up every week if you're going to still be a part of that family, right? That's one of the deepest engines of, of community. I'm a part of the family I'm a part of. I don't just decide to bail, um, if you guys have had a father or a mother or a sibling bail out, you know the pain there, right? Uh, for, for us, we, those of us who are, are bearing the fruits of community are probably experiencing a lot of uh, sacrifice, and I don't really want to go today, but I need this. Um, I have to sacrifice my freedom. Um, for identity, this is, this is a really hard one, um, we like to think we can give ourselves our own identity. Um, 
we, we try to give ourselves identities, and those identities could be um, our work, what we do, our position, our, our ability to climb the corporate ladder. That, that identity, frankly, could be maybe um, our, our sexuality and the culture that we have. That's a huge piece of identity. That identity could be your political ideals, your political class, kind of how you think the government should run. Um, you could define yourselves by what and if you can provide. Who, what you can do. You maybe, maybe your hobbies define you. Um, here's the thing. Those are all penultimate identities, and we all know it, don't we? They're, they're, they're fragile. No one, no one can question them. No one, no one can, can challenge them because they might break. And so what that does is it creates this restlessness because I have this identity that, that I, I, I need to give myself because I'm rejecting giving away freedom to a God who gives me an identity. So I need to keep this identity very safe because it's made of glass and it might break. That makes me hostile. It makes me insecure, frankly. It makes me restless. Identity is supposed to operate where Something above us gives us our identity. We aren't meant to give ourselves our own identity. Identity comes from something higher and better than us. This is a really silly analogy, but a chair you bought at Ikea does not decide for itself whether it is an inside chair or a patio chair. You decide, and it flourishes under this decision that you've made, right? It's made out of like hard plastics, and it belongs in a certain place, and it's good for it. It flourishes when something higher than the chair gives it its identity. When the chair grows legs, walks up to your dinner table, and it's incredibly uncomfortable, not, not as flourishing. Um, so there's this restlessness when we deny that. We try to make the, the square peg fit in the round hole. Augustine, uh, one of the church fathers, said it like this. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. So the question, are you restless? Um, so we, we distort, we, we, we refuse to give up our freedoms and we cling to this idea of freedom so hard that it distorts the idea until it becomes a false freedom. Um, in Seattle, in really most of America right now, uh, humans are experiencing an unprecedented level of Freedom. I can go wherever I want. If I were responsible enough to have an updated passport, I could leave today and go to Canada. Um, I can buy within reason anything that I need. I can make any meaningful choice I need to. And yet, our culture is filled with anxiety. Everywhere you go, people are anxious. Everywhere you go, people are feeling the weight of, like we prayed for, thank you, Susie. People are feeling the weight of this crushing loneliness due in part to, I cannot give up this freedom. I've been told that this freedom is everything. I cannot give it up to community. So we're, there's just this crushing anxiety in our culture. And Mark Sayers uh, helpfully says, when, it, when, a, when a culture is about to collapse, when a system is breaking down, anxiety is the canary in the coal mine. 
You guys familiar with that saying? Uh, coal miners used to bring a canary in to the mine with them so that if, if stuff was about to go bad, if there's gases in the air that you can't see, the canary dies. As soon as that canary dies, the coal miners go, get out. So for us, for, according to Mark Sayers, anxiety is the canary in the coal mine when our systems are about to fall apart. To put it in the language of the text, our culture has been taken captive by this philosophy. Um, I have been taken captive of this philosophy. I'm going to argue that most of us are battling captivity to this philosophy. Um, see, we've, we've dethroned God as king, and even myself, right? I'm the one giving the word. I've done this in my heart. Even worse than dethroning God as king is we've put ourselves on the throne, right? I am the one who makes my own choices. I have the right to decide what is good and what is not good. Here's the thing. Church, I know most everybody in this room, I love y'all, but you guys are horrible gods, right? How many of you experienced sitting on the throne of your own heart and being like, I'm terrible at this at a certain point? Right, But we still, we go back to that well and we keep trying to make it work because this time, and it's always the same result. Hmm. Um, so we embrace this, this false freedom. And I have some questions for you. How are you sleeping? What do you think about when you're alone? Are you anxious? Are you scared? Are you lonely? Do people know you? Do you feel trapped? See, those, so many of us, myself included, answer those questions in a way that reveals I'm not nearly as free as I think I am. church it's because sometimes we subscribe to a false freedom here's here's the thing uh, there's a there's a quote from the, the business world that i first heard on cultural moment i think it's excellent so basically the quote is this every system is perfectly designed to give you the results that it gives you um, what results are we getting our system might be designed wrongly. Um, so that's a huge bummer, Will. Um, what do we do? I, I think a good first step is we need to reframe what we believe freedom is. Um, I think we reframe our idea of freedom by looking to the Bible as um, as beautiful as as correct as, as wanting to lead us into flourishing. Um, so let's look at the scripture in freedom. Um, we're going to go through a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of different texts this morning just to give us a, a sample size of how the Bible speaks of freedom. First, we're going to look at Exodus. Uh, there's this the term in Exodus that's used a lot, I just put one of its instances on, on the, the screen here, but there's this idea in Exodus that God repeats. He says, let my people go. We all know that line, 
Let my people go. Free my people. Give my people over to freedom. Amen. So that they may serve me. Let my people go so that they may serve me. Give my people freedom, not as a means unto themselves. Give my people freedom so that they can use that freedom to submit under the goodness and the mercy and the love of God. Jesus is going to speak to this idea in Luke 17, 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. So Jesus is, is I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume, speaking to a group of people who have a, a, a very real sense of self-preservation. I have, to, I, have to, I have to make sure I'm okay, kind of our you-do-you you kind of a thing. Uh, the, the, I'm all for self-care, right? But the self-care kind of a thing. And Jesus says, some of y'all are trying, holding on to your lives too tightly. If you want to have freedom, you actually have to give up freedom. Jesus turns our idea of freedom on its head, and it's very confusing, frankly. Um, we were praying before the gathering for you, and uh, one, of the, one of the people praying and, and trying to express this idea of freedom literally had to stop and say, I don't have words for it. We had to say, this idea of freedom is ineffable. We don't have categories for it because it's so backwards for us. Next, let's look at the Apostle Paul. He's uh, a guy who wrote a lot of our New Testament. He has, his writing in the New Testament really frames up our Christian theology of freedom, right? So in a sense, this is the guy who in the New Testament wrote the book on freedom. Look at how he chooses to identify himself. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That word servant in the, in the Greek is much less... Uh, tame than we would think of servant. It's not like, Paul, a servant when I feel like it. Uh, no, Paul, a bond servant. He, he goes a step further in, in Ephesians. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So the guy who writes the book on freedom identifies himself primarily through a means of, I am enslaved, I am captive to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to argue this is one of the most free people we know. So we see the Bible is, is giving us, frankly, more freedom than any book ever has or ever will. But it's a freedom that is odd to us. It is, uh, we're, we're really into, in our culture, freedom from Right? We want freedom from having to do anything the man tells us. Freedom from being coerced ever into anything for any reason. Freedom from accountability. Freedom from having to give an answer. Freedom from being asked questions. We want freedom so that I can just be my island and autonomous. The Bible, as far as I can tell, the Bible seems a lot more concerned with freedom too. Freedom to love others greater than you love yourself. Freedom, here's the, this is a crazy idea. Freedom to pick up a cross and follow Jesus to be crucified. Freedom to weep with those who weep. Freedom to come alongside those experiencing cripplingly lonely, cripplingly lonely seasons 
and sacrifice of ourselves. Freedom to give. Freedom, like, like Luis preached a week ago, freedom to wrestle and toil and struggle with agony for a people you've never seen. Like Glenn preached two weeks ago, freedom to suffer in such a way that you, your suffering might put a spotlight on Jesus Christ so that people may know him. That's not the freedom we tend to think about. And I'm, I'm in that boat. We, when, when Jesus talks about freedom, his freedom, let's be honest, sounds a lot like captivity. Free to sacrifice, free to give, free to hurt. Those are not normally words that I associate with freedom. Um, but the freedom we tend to fall into is what Jesus will call, what Paul will call slavery. I want, I want to be free to put myself on the throne of my own heart. And the Bible pretty clearly says, you are a slave to sin. Um, Paul picking up this idea in the book of Romans, this isn't on the screen, but more or less he gives the idea of when I am enthroned on my own heart, there are tons of things that I really wish that I could do and I don't do them. And there are tons of things that I wish I, would, I, I wouldn't do. And those are the things that I'm trapped in doing. And I've, I've lived in that experience. Um, Jesus is offering freedom to be a captive. And it destroys a lot of our categories, frankly. Jesus is offering freedom to be held and bound and sacrificed into community so that you can experience the fruits of being known. Jesus is offering you an identity. The bad news is it supersedes all of our identities. The bad news. The good news is it's not fragile. When I become a captive of Jesus, I become truly free. Why? Because that's how good Jesus is. That being his captive actually leads you to freedom. When I'm a captive to Jesus, I have an identity that cannot be shaken. You can't, you can't throw me off of this thing where I'm like, man, I am no longer like the song we sing. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God and there's nothing you can do to throw me off of that identity. I have, I have a community that, that I experience blessing in, but even beyond that, I have a community that is everlasting and eternal. Every week in our home gathering, I have a meal with people that I'm going to have a meal with forever in eternity with Jesus. I'm sharing one of infinity meals with these people. That does something. When I'm captive to Jesus, I'm not defined by my failure. I'm not undone by hardship. Jesus reorients my life and my heart so that I can flourish under the Christian disciplines. When I am a captive of Jesus, I have a means to battle and fight against depression. When I'm a captive to Jesus, I can be healed from things in my past. I can be forgiven and I can say no to sin. And I can have unexplainable joy. 
are there places, brother, sister, church, where we're held captive? Are there places where I will not give up my grasp on my ability to decide for myself? How are we doing? Are we in broken systems? Has the canary in the coal mine gone over? I want to turn now and look at, I want to give us a story of the gospel, and I'd like to try my best to frame up this gospel story through this lens of captivity that we're looking at. So church, as, as best as I can deliver it, this is the gospel. <clears throat> God created the universe perfect and beautiful and put people in a garden in Eden. Their freedom was knowing God and seeing him, literally walking with him in the cool of the day. Everything was right and good. They experienced true identity. They were, they were gods and it was beautiful. They experienced perfect community together. God was their freedom, but it didn't stay that way. Adam and Eve were taken captive by a philosophy. There is this tempter that entered into the garden and offered them this philosophy. You can be like God. You can know good and evil. You can delineate between right and wrong for yourself apart from God. And they are held captive to it. As the story goes, they, they take and eat of the fruit. When they do this, creation fractures. Community breaks. They, they, you see our first fight in the Bible. It's not my fault. It's her fault. It's not, it's not my fault. It's, 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 it's his fault. You see community break. You see identities fracture. They, they are naked and ashamed. and you see them embrace false freedom. But God gives them a promise. God says, I'm going to send a second Adam. One day, he'll undo the curse. Generations and generations and generations go by. People give themselves over and over again to false freedom. Things get very, very bad. But one day, Jesus comes. During Jesus' ministry, it says that he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by this tempter once again. So rather than a garden, Jesus is in a desert. And the tempter asks him, will you throw off your identity? Will you break community with the Father? Will you decide for yourself what is good? If you'll just do this, I'll give you all the kingdoms in the world. If you'll just take this philosophy, I'll give you everything. He presents Jesus a very good-looking false philosophy. Church, here's some good news. Jesus did what you and I could never do he did what only he could do, and he said no to that false philosophy. 
He said, no, I will not be held to your false philosophy. I will be held to God. I will be captive to God's will. Later in the story, we do see Jesus in a garden. This time, he's, he knows what's about to happen. He knows the crucifixion is coming. And he prays. And to summarize the prayer, in his prayer, he's, he's communicating, God, I know that the people that I'm, I'm, I'm coming to save are about to take me into a false trial. They are going to strip me naked. They are going to humiliate me. They're going to beat me so that I am not recognizable as a human being. They're going to nail me to a tree. He says, God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know that I, I want to do this. But for you and for me, he says, I will not be held captive to my own freedom. I will choose God's will. And he does that for you and for me. Because he does that, he's nailed to a cross. He's nailed to my cross. He's nailed to your cross. And they kill him. They kill the only person who's ever had perfect community, perfect use of freedom, perfect identity. And three days later, he, he rises again. Here's the good news, church. Because of this, this gruesome death, but also this glorious resurrection of Jesus. Church, you and I are invited into verse 6 of our text this morning. Verse 8 was, church, do not be held captive to false, false philosophy because it will undo you. Danger. Verse 6 is, church, be rooted in Christ. Church, walk in him and be built up in him. Be one with him. Experience flourishing. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, that's an invitation that we actually get to enjoy. Amen. Yeah, we should amen that. So I have some questions to, to, to apply this text, to apply these thoughts. Brother, sister, are you free to choose community even when you don't want to? Are you free to accept the identity that God gives you even when it disagrees with the identity that you give yourself? Or are you enslaved to giving yourself a false identity? Are you enslaved to not choose community? Are you free to give of yourself? Are you free to love sacrificially? When it, when it comes to our time, our budget, and our thinking, our efforts, are we free to ask, how much do I keep rather than how much do I give? Are you free to be honest and vulnerable? even when it doesn't feel like it's in your best interest. Church, this is, this is a big one. Are you free to confess sin? 
I mean that as maybe sin you've committed. I mean that as are you free to confess sin that's been done to you and is so shameful? Like we talked about earlier in the book of Colossians Church, are you free to be uncomfortable? Are you free to even suffer for the name of Jesus? Are we free to give up false freedom and be bound to Jesus? Here's here's the thing. I think this text gives us two options. We tend to think of it as as maybe three. We we tend to think of 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 categories of you can either be held captive to two things or again I can be my own true north. I can sit on the throne of my heart. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't see the third option in scripture. I think our two options today are you may be held captive to a philosophy that will break you. You can be held captive to the tempter or you can be held captive to Jesus. Those are our choices. Church, may we reject captivity to the world, to dangerous philosophy, to Satan, to ourselves. May we accept captivity to Jesus. Just as we, we always start these sermons with reading the scriptures, I thought it would be appropriate to let the scriptures have the last word in the sermon this morning. And so I want to read to you from the book of John chapter 8, starting in verse 34. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Church, hear this. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, our God and our King, my heart, our hearts, long for freedom. On behalf of myself, on, on behalf of this church interceding, on behalf of our city, I want to repent for the places where we have settled for false freedom, where we have been led away and taken captive by lies. God, would you forgive us? Would you heal us, deliver us, save us? Thank you for the gospel, our hope, our peace, our true and lasting freedom. May we look to you. May we cling to you. May we be held captive to you, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. Amen.